and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were, uh, where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that... Um, that as we open it up and uh, consider your words, Lord, we recognize that you are in this place. And we just invite your spirit um, to just do his thing among us right now, Lord. I pray that um, your word would be clear. Lord, we pray that it would be compelling, Lord, and that we pray that it would be effective in accomplishing your purposes this morning. Um, we thank you for your word, which is eternal and true, Lord, and we just ask that you would write it on our hearts. Form us and to the people that you have called us to be. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, growing up, I was, probably not unlike many of you growing up, always in search of adventure. Always in search of adventure. I grew up in, in Dubuque, and our family lived just on the outside of town. It was sort of just on the edge of the city, and um, sort of the city was to our, let's see, be the east, and to the west of us was just the country. And so we had creeks, we had woods, we had in Dubuque the bluffs and caves. There was all sorts of stuff to explore. We, would, we eventually stumbled across as we were making our way through the woods. One day we stumbled across an abandoned lead mine shaft, which provided, as you can imagine, endless opportunities for me and my neighborhood friends to get into trouble and to just have fun. It was an adventure. Just love it. I don't know if you can relate, but perhaps you find yourself, maybe you did growing up, maybe you do right now, this very day, in search of adventure, looking for something to just capture and thrill your hearts, to give yourself to adventure. Adventure is a wonderful thing. Adventure helps us as human beings find meaning and purpose in life. There's a reason why Many of us long for adventure. Well, if that describes you this morning, look no further. Acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 14 provides for us the adventure that God has called us, has designed us for. If you were here with us last week as we studied, started our study of Acts 
Um, we've said that there's sort of a melodic line that carries us throughout the whole of the book. And as we consider one chapter after another, we, we sort of hold it up to that melodic line to make sense, to find meaning. What is God's word saying? I'll remind you what that melodic line is. If you are going to be with us from one week to the next, I would encourage you to write this down. It's simply this. God extends his kingdom as his Holy Spirit-filled people spread his word. That's what the book of Acts is about. That's what we will discover as we explore and walk through this book together. To this morning, as we consider this, this passage and hold it up in, in line with that melodic line, what we'll see the big idea, what God is ultimately calling us to this morning is simply this. He's asking us, he's commanding us to embrace our role in continuing the work of Jesus. What is Acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 14 asking you to do this morning? It's got a message for each and every one of us and it's simply this. Embrace your role in continuing the work of Jesus. We saw it last week as we introduced this book in the first five verses that Luke is continuing his message. It's a volume two of the, the first volume. It continues. And as we, he, his message continues, we see that Christ's ministry also continues. It's, it's the same story ultimately with the same hero. And he's doing exactly the same thing. He is expanding and building his kingdom. Luke tells us in verse one that what Jesus began Began to do, volume one, Gospel of Luke, through the book of Acts, we will see that he is continuing to do after he ascends into heaven. It's vital for us to understand the book of Acts is understanding this Jesus is still at work. As this budding Christian movement begins to take root in the ancient Near East and the church experiences explosive growth over the region, it does so because Jesus is still at work. And this is a historical book. It's a historical account that reminds us that just as Jesus was at work in their day, because he is still on the throne, he's still in heaven, guess what? He's still at work today. He is still at work through our church and through our very lives. Now, if you were to go back and read, it's unfortunate that when they put together the, the books of the Bible, when they, the, the, when they put together the canon of Scripture, that John separates volume one, the Gospel of Luke, and volume two, the Acts of the Apostles, or like we said last week, the, the Acts of the Risen Christ. It's unfortunate that the book of John sort of separates those two. It's not a knock against John. It's the inspired word of God. It's great. But if you were to just read, continue to read volume one through volume two, you'll see that what Luke does as he writes these two volumes is he does something that's not unlike what you and I would do if we were to write two sort of volumes. There's an overlap there's sort of an overlap at the end of the Gospel of Luke. It overlaps a portion of the beginning of the, of the Acts, of the book of Acts. This, this overlap is an overlap of about 40 days. And what you should do as you read the scripture, as you read God's word, is you should look for areas within that overlap, areas at the end of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts that are common, 
What does he say twice? What does he say multiple times? What does he say at the end of Luke that he also says at the beginning of Acts? And when you see common themes there and that overlap, then it should jump off the page that there is something really important. And if you were to, if you were to do that, I did that this week and saw sort of five different themes. Five different things that he says at the end of the Gospel of Luke that he also says here at the beginning of the book of Acts in the first couple of verses. Five things. And as we... Look at these five things. You'll kind of see them as we walk through these verses this morning. We see, he says in both places, the Holy Spirit is coming and you should wait for him. Okay? It says it in Luke, it says it here in Acts. He says that the Spirit, that as he comes, he's a Spirit who is promised by the Father, the promised Holy Spirit. He also says in both places that when he comes, you will receive power. You'll receive power. He says it twice. He also says that you will receive that power when he comes for the sake of being witnesses. You'll be a witness. And then finally, the other thing that he says in both places is that these witnesses will have a particular mission. And the mission would go from Jerusalem, it would begin in Jerusalem, and it would expand to the nations. And this, this pattern of expansion, this last thing that we see he says twice in both places, this pattern of expansion, it, it, it's, it's front and center in our text this morning as we consider verse 8, which is really the heart of this passage. And, and really it's a summary statement, not just of this passage, but ultimately what we will see throughout the book of Acts. It's a wonderful summary statement. It, it summarizes really the way that the book of Acts is even structured. That, that this, this pattern that it will begin in Jerusalem, that it will go to Judea and Samaria, and then from there it will go to the ends of the earth. It's the way that the book of Acts is structured. If you were to just think of the book in its entirety, what you'll see is that chapter 1 through chapter 7 is about the witness these witnesses and how they are to witness in Jerusalem. The, the whole focus of chapter 1 through 7 is on the restoration of Israel. And so as we look at our text this morning, you'll see that the, the disciples ask a question. And oftentimes throughout this story, there'll be many opportunities where we'll see the disciples, much like ourselves, sort of dropping the ball, right? Maybe like you, you, you'll read stories and be like, how could you, how could you say that? How could you do that? And our text begins this morning with a question that they ask, but I want to, I want to remind you that as, as we look at this question, this question is not one of those, was not one of those, um, ex, those examples where the disciples make fools of themselves. In fact, this question is very, very good question. If you think of what Jesus is doing when he's spending time with the disciples, we saw last week that he's speaking, verse 5, about the kingdom of God. It, it was the core of his message. After he resurrected, before he ascended, he spent 40 days and he sums, summarizes what he did in those 40 days by speaking about the, God, the kingdom of God. So it's a very good, it's a very good question. Not just as a good question because of what, what Jesus was engaging them with, this kingdom of God, but it's also a good question because these men, as, as Jews, they were expecting the kingdom of God to be restored. It was a part of their message. They were expecting the immediate restoration of Israel. See this in Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 31, that there was an anticipation that this God would pour out his spirit on his people. And when he did, that he would restore Israel. This is a really good question to ask. 
look at, look at what it says in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? These disciples, they're listening to Jesus' message. They're building on their, their understanding of God's kingdom. And they ask him a great question. Jesus doesn't say, that's a terrible question. It's a great question. But what they got wrong in the question was a matter really ultimately of timing. Jesus was God's appointed king and he was to usher in the restoration of Israel to which many Jews looked forward to with expectation and what Jesus himself had spoken about. Jesus did not deny or reject their expectation of restoration. He, actually, he endorses it. But he interpreted in terms of the gift of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of God's plan to make Israel into a servant community called to be witnesses to the nations. And we'll see as you, as you read throughout chapters 1 and chapter 7, as we look at these, these chapters in the weeks and months ahead, what we'll see is that the focus after Pentecost becomes on Jerusalem and the temple and they are witnessing to Israel. They're witnessing to Israel. Then in chapter 8 through 11, we'll see that their witness goes from Israel to Judea and to Samaria. Essentially, the early church will be witnesses after it witnesses to Jerusalem. It will be witnesses to the outcasts, to the people who on, are on the margins of Israel, of society. We see this most clearly in chapter 8 in the, the narrative of Philip. We'll see it in a few weeks when, or it's probably going to be longer than a few weeks. It'll be a while. We'll see it in a while. When, he, when, when, when Philip... Um, when the gospel goes through Philip to, uh, Samarit to Samaritans, people who are, these are people who are separated socially, geographically, religiously from their kin in Jerusalem. They, they worshiped at Mount Gerizim. They were, they were told that they, that as we read through the narrative, that they believed Philip when he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ and that they were baptized. So here are these people who are socially rejected, marginalized, hear the good news, they receive it, and they're baptized. You keep reading in, in Acts chapter 8, and you come across the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. This man represents an outsider. He was an outsider with sort of a unique relationship to the temple. Eunuchs were not even permitted to pass through the outer courts of the temple. They were emasculated men who were, who were both prized and demonized in their day. Prized because they were seen as trustworthy individuals. You could, you could trust them, but they were demonized because of their sexual ambiguity. And as an Ethiopian, he would have also represented sort of the, the far distant places of the earth. Yet despite his questionable social status, what we'll see is that this foreigner is brought in, that he is witness to, and he hears the gospel, receives it, and is baptized as well. And, and this sets up a chunk in the book of Acts where we see outsiders, Judea and Samaria, those are on the margins of Israel, hearing the message of the kingdom, receiving the gospel, and the Lord is adding to their number. And then from chapter 12 to the end of the book, what we see is as Paul's conversion happens, that he is set on, the, merchant, the church commissions him and sends him on one missionary journey after another to take this message to the ends of the earth. 
And so verse 8 provides for us as not just a central portion of our passage today. It is also a, gives us a structure by which we read through the whole book of Acts. It's a summary statement of what we will see God do through the risen Christ as he gives his spirit to his people and spreads his word as he expands his kingdom. Now this morning, what we want to do is I want to look at just three, three things. And we'll make them quick. Three things. We're going to consider this morning as we look at this text, the plan, the power, and the passion. We said at the beginning that we are going to be encouraged through this text to embrace, to embrace ultimately, embrace our role in continuing the work of Jesus. And in order to do that, let's first consider together the plan. Jesus, very simply, calls you and me to be witnesses, to be witnesses for Christ. This is a message that we will see over and over and over in Acts. This word witness specifically, we'll see it in Peter's speech in chapter 2. We'll see it again in chapter 3. see it in chapter 10 and chapter 22. That God has made these people to be witnesses. To be witnesses. And this is really nothing new in the biblical story. This is nothing, this is not a new concept that God has called his people to be representatives, to bear witness to his grace and his faithfulness and his mercy. This is nothing new. In Isaiah chapter 43, we have a, a passage that really summarizes it well. It says, fear not for I have redeemed you. God says, fear not, speaking specifically to his people, for I have redeemed you. I have made you my own. I have called you by my name. You, he says, are mine. You are my witnesses, he says, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. He has made his people, he says, to be witnesses. If you're here this morning, and you would identify as a follower of Jesus, you, dear brother and sister, are called to be a witness. This is a calling that has been placed on each of our lives. Regardless of the stage of life that we may find ourselves in, regardless of the, the busyness of our life, regardless of the resources that we have or don't have, Regardless of our spiritual maturity, maturity, God has called us. If he has called you by name, he has made you to be a witness. We're all called to bear witness to God's grace, God's faithfulness, his love in our life. The difference between the believer sitting, let's just say, you know, basic context in their Iowa City home, or the believer serving overseas, crossing geographical, cultural barriers. The difference in those two individuals is merely a difference in geography. Not one of identity. Every Christian is called to be a witness. We are witnesses. That's who we are. And if you consider just the plan, you think of it like in the who, the what, and the where. The who is, he's speaking specifically to us and calling us to be witnesses. He says in verse 8, you will be my witnesses. This is one of the five things that are mentioned both at the end of Luke and at the beginning here of Acts. These, these men and these women are witnesses. 
They had the definition of witnesses. They had seen something. A, a witness is a, is a person who has experienced something powerfully, has encountered the living Christ. They, they've experienced him sweeping away their sins, dwelling in their heart, leaving them, as it were, completely and totally changed. They had seen something. And what we see as we, as we look at the back, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts is he provides proof for them. He gives them certainty, assurance that what they had seen is actually real. I mean, he could have, if you think about God's design, he could have resurrected and immediately ascended. But he didn't. He spent time with them, providing proof of who he was, what he had done. And they bore witness to who he was. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, you have also encountered the living Christ. He has changed you. The Bible says that the old has gone and the new has come. Now granted, some of us may have more radical sort of transformation stories or experiences, but here's the deal. We have all experienced, encountered the same Jesus. And the effect is exactly the same on us. We are witnesses. What are we witnesses to? We, we are witnesses to a message that is one that is at one hand totally simple, but also deeply profound. Simply this, what are we supposed to, what's this, this message that we're supposed to bear witness of? It's simply this, Jesus Christ is God. He came took on flesh, gave up his life, paid for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he calls us to believe and receive forgiveness of sin. That is the message. As simple as it is, it is totally profound. New life is available. The forgiveness of sins is possible. And there's no club you have to join, no dues you have to pay, no checklist that you have to carry around with you and mark off day by day. The only sort of resume that we bring and offer to the risen Christ is that of our need, our depravity. Jesus forgives our sins and transforms our lives. That's a miracle. That right there is what we are to bear witness to. So the focus as we read through these, these chapters, we'll see sort of sermon after sermon. And what we'll see is, is individuals bearing witness to that message. Jesus can forgive your sins and can give you new life. We'll see it over and over and over again throughout the book. And what we'll see is this, in verse 8 specifically, it says the, we see the who witnesses, you and me, what, the message. And then finally we see in verse 8, where some of us, it may be difficult to feel sort of the impact of these words. Yet you can imagine how shocked his disciples were when they heard Jesus map out sort of these different geographical designations. Jerusalem, this was where Jesus was killed. You, you are going to go to the temple, to Jerusalem, the very place where our leader was murdered. And you, his followers, not too many days later, are going to go there and bear witness to this Christ. Judea, the place where they had been rejected. Samaria, a place that was so different. Culturally, they wanted nothing to do with the place. The ends of the earth. Even the Gentiles, those who are the furthest away from us, 
You, you could imagine how difficult it was for these men and women to hear that this was their assignment. And again, this is one of the things that is pointed out here in Luke and or here in Acts, and again before in Volume One in, in, in Luke. The scope of their missionary heart was to be the ends of the earth. And likewise, that is what the scope of our heart should be as well. As we consider the specific place that God, time and place that God has placed us, Parkview East, where he has placed us right now, the assignment is no different. The assignment is no different. We are to bear witness to the power of Jesus, the risen Lord, here in our community and to the ends of the earth. Another way that you could say it is God has made us, Parkview East, to be a neighborhood church that exists for the nations. That's who we are. We have a, not just a response, this is the adventure that we're on. This is the privilege that we get to talk about the risen Lord Jesus with our neighbors, with those here in our community, across the street, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, to bear witness to this life-changing message here in our community. But it doesn't just stop here. We also have a, an obligation, a responsibility to bear witness to this Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's the scope of our mission. Let's consider the power. You may think to yourself, that's impossible. How do we do that? That just seems like a big task, massive assignment. And you may be questioning yourself right now. Can, can, I've never done that. I've never shared the gospel with anybody. And you may be asking yourself, how can I do that? Well, the next thing that we discover is that, is that there's not just, he doesn't just give them the plan and says, here's what you're supposed to go, go do, go do it. He also gives them a power, a power to actually pull it off. He tells us himself where this power is coming from. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There'd be a brief sort of 10-day interlude that would pass. Uh, and then we would learn that Jesus, just as he promised, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the apostles. There were tongues of fire. People spoke in different languages. Power flowed to them and through them. And then this amazing thing happened. Peter stands up and proclaims Jesus. And we, we hear, in the, in the, in the, as we continue reading the narrative, that 3,000 people were, would repent and were added to their number that very day. The power, as you read through story after story after story, is so clear. It's so evident that these men, who we would learn later in chapter 4, 13, are described as uneducated, totally common people, are turning the world on its head. They're filled with boldness. There is a power in these individuals that is completely unexplainable apart from God, apart from his spirit. We see this power on display as these men and women huddle together, link arms together, endure persecution, face rejection and prison, stonings. They perform one miracle after another, all while proclaiming Christ boldly and advancing his kingdom. Listen, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on followers of Jesus, no matter how common they are, 
the most unlikely people become fountains of that power. The power flows through them so that the mission that he's given us can actually be accomplished. Again, we see that this is something that is focused on at the end of Luke. It says in chapter 24, verse 49, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It says, in fact, don't go anywhere. <laughs> The task I'm calling to you, you two, is, is so remarkable. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Just wait. Just wait. Because the reality is, in order for us, the, the people of God, chosen by God, as we are equipped with the Word of God and dedicated ourselves to the Son of God, to be faithful to the mission of God, we cannot do it apart from the Spirit of God. It is the power by which we are faithful to His mission. Last thing I want to consider this this morning is, is, is we consider this story and you think about these individuals with Jesus, the, the resurrected Christ, as you consider them having been through all that they've been through, seeing what they, what they were able to see, put yourself in their shoes. These people saw something. What we know is as they go out and they spread that they face all kinds of persecution, they will face death. These are people whose lives have been gripped by something much higher than themselves. They clearly have, God has given them, and Jesus spoke very clear, here is the plan. He lays it out for them. He gives them the power. But there's another thing that these individuals possess, possess to actually be faithful to it. And it's simply this. They possess passion. They are convinced that what happened actually happened. And that this Jesus that, that, that is standing in front of them is worthy of them just handing their lives over to. These are a passionate people. There's a story told of George Whitfield. He's one of the primary sort of figures in the Great Awakening, which swept through Great Britain and the American colonies. During his ministry, you know, there's, it's hard to sort of calculate, but it's believed that he preached at least 18,000 times. He's a man who's just passionate for Jesus. Perhaps they would speculate maybe 10 million listeners heard this man preach the gospel. And while ministering during a stretch in Edinburgh, uh, people would get up at about 5.30 in the morning just to hear him preach. A man on his way one particular morning said to have bumped into uh, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher and skeptic. Of all the people uh, that were going to this evangelistic revival, Hume was sort of the last person you would expect to see listening to George Whitfield. Surprised at seeing him on his way to, to hear Whitfield, the man said, I thought you didn't believe the gospel. And Hume's response was this, I don't, but he does. See, what David Hume was so captivated by what drew him to the message was an individual who was on fire for something. He was passionate about it. Folks, the message that we proclaim is a simple one, but the demand it places on our lives as messengers is serious. For our witness to be effective, there must be passion and zeal would people say the same thing about you? 
But they say the same thing about me. It can be so easy to just get caught in the sort of mundane week-to-week activity. All good stuff. Obviously, being at church on a Sunday morning, fantastic. Keep doing it. Maybe you're in a community group serving in some way. These are all excellent activities, excellent things that we want to encourage and that is really necessary to be a part of the life of the church. But the temptation is, the danger is, is that we can just kind of go through the motions and we can lose in the midst of that our passion our zeal. Can you, can you picture the disciples this moment gazing into heaven in complete amazement at what they had just seen in total awe of Jesus who, who had just ascended to heaven. This zeal for Jesus is the, the fuel for missions and, and the goal of missions. See, here's the deal. As much as we want to embrace the work that God has called us to, ultimately, worshiping Jesus is the goal. That's what we are designed for. And, and the work that he's called us to is, to is to make as many worshipers of Jesus as we can possibly manage. I was with somebody uh, from our congregation recently who experienced tremendous loss. And this individual was, was thinking about just what do you do now? What do I do now? Just bearing his heart. And it was so amazing some of the words that came out of his mouth. He says, I have no idea what to do other than to drag as many unsuspecting people to Jesus as possible. It's a great way of summarizing what God has called you and me to. Hopefully they go along more willingly. (laughs) Now, just in in closing, I want to offer just a couple of, you might be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I mean, this this is a phenomenal passage. And really, I don't know if you've noticed it, but I just preached on one verse, Acts chapter one, verse eight. And to watch how these individuals commit themselves. They listen to Jesus. And then the next move is they don't go anywhere. They, their faithfulness and their obedience to Jesus is commendable. Instead, what do they do? They just pray. They come back together. They link arms. They bow their heads and they pray. And as you might be thinking to yourself, what do I do? What, what, what is the step to take? It's very, I mean, the steps are no different than what I would say any other week preaching on, on, on missions. You know, you can support people, you can pray for people, you can go, you can be active. We know all the steps of how we can participate in this. I want us to rather this morning just think of some reasons why maybe we aren't. If you're sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I haven't, I really haven't told anybody about Jesus in the last, I don't know, year. Or I don't, I don't support God's global mission in any way, shape, or form. I have no idea of what he's doing throughout the nations. I'm just not engaged in it right now. You're not embracing his call to continue the work of Jesus. I want you to just think about some reasons why you're not, okay? I'm gonna put a couple before you. Oftentimes, one reason that we are not embracing his call is because we don't love the things that Jesus loves. This is Jesus's plan, And he's enlisted us to participate in it and help carry it out. Oftentimes, the reason why we don't embrace it is because we don't love the things that Jesus loves. Our lives, if we just were to step back and look, 
and survey them look more like the values and the idols of our culture than the God of our kingdom. Rather than being salt and light to the world around us, we are simply imitations, products of the world around us. Missiologist David Bosch puts it like this. Churches are to be rather a contrast society. Contrast societies, counter, uh, counter cultures that show society what human life looks like free from idols, race and wealth and sex and power and individual autonomy. We are to present the world a different picture. And oftentimes we don't because we simply imitate the picture. It's one reason why. Another reason why many of us are not embracing the call is because we have bought the lie that we're not spiritually mature enough, that we're just not sort of ready. Some think that when you reach a level of spiritual maturity, then you will be ready to participate in God's global mandate to make disciples of all nations. If that's you, you could write this one down. You will never be mature enough this side of heaven. We will always, every single one of us, have plenty of room to grow. And if you're waiting for your day to sort of arrive, you will never embrace God's call. You won't. And you'll be likely constantly disappointed. You know, imagine there was a couple of years ago, my wife and I were on a date and there was, it looked like uh, a, a couple that was across the way. There wasn't a lot of people there. And uh, I, would, I would guess that they were like a first date type of situation. It was sort of awkward. They were not too far away. So you can kind of tell that they were not really connecting or, you know, whatever. And about, you know, the food came out to them. And um, as they started eating, I, the woman started to, to choke. She started to choke. And I, I looked over there and just saw that she was choking. And the reason why I think it was a first date is because the guy didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, it just, he was like frozen. He just, he's like this. And I got up and walked about probably halfway to the table before she, you know, hacked out the piece of steak or whatever it was that she was meeting. And the guy never got out of his chair. It was just like, what is, this is not, probably the first date and the last date, honestly, is my guess. Oh, that one ended. But. Let me tell you what would not, if I would have gotten to her to help, you know, dislodge the food that was in her throat, what she would not have done is said, time out, hold up. Do you have like a certificate of first aid that you could present and show me? Because I just want to make sure that your credentials are right before you try to save my life. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't say, could you just quickly take this or watch this video or pass this test? Just show me that you know what you're doing. She wouldn't do that. She, she would just welcome my help, my life-saving help, right? The reality is none of us have fully arrived, but all of us are called to be witnesses of a life-saving and life-changing message. Third, why are we not participating? I think there's only three of these. Some of us are not participating. This one might seem a little odd and we've said it before, but some of us are not actively involved in it because we go to a church that is always, you know, 
We got Faith Academy, great initiatives happening. We've got many, many global workers. A tremendous amount of our budget is spent towards our global workers. Our Parkview historically has been a, a church that has really embraced this. And that's fantastic, it's good. We love this church. Some of us ourselves, however, are maybe opting out of it because we're a part of a church that does it. And so we think individually, I don't have to. See, oftentimes what we do is we measure sort of, um, like how am I doing? We measure it by the people around us. And if we just do it maybe a little bit more than the person next to us, then we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. It's the wrong way to measure when you're thinking about God's call on your life. The, the better way to do it is to look at God's word and to simply look in your heart and say, am I doing this? Am I doing this? William Carey, who blazed the trail to India in, 19, in 1792, saw his mission, sort of the picture he envisioned of himself was as a, as a miner penetrating into a deep mine which had never been explored before with no one to guide him. And he said to Andrew Fuller and, and John Ryland, his pastor friends, he says, I will go into the mine if you will hold the rope. And the truth is not every single one of us here this morning is called to, to go overseas. You don't need to leave here this morning, go buy an airplane ticket or sign up for a missions agency. You don't have to be the person who leaves the comfort necessarily of your workplace or home and actively goes to a different far off foreign place to do this. For some of us, it means simply supporting those, holding the rope as others do, giving towards it, praying. Is it in our weekly sort of prayer rhythm to, to pray for? Uh, uh, Paul Donaldson, the Global Worker Coordinator, has put together a fantastic Global Worker booklet that highlights the different needs and prayer uh, Global Workers that we can, we can pray for. We are all called to embrace the role of continuing the work of Jesus. No matter where we live, no matter where we work, no matter our age, we're all called to embrace this mission. You know, in closing, we're gonna to transition to a time of communion. And I forgot my, I don't even know what you call this thing over here. If you have one of these, you can take it out. Um, before we do, you know, I think of, when we think about mission, specifically the mission that God has called us to, you know, we spent recently as a church walking through John 17. And one of the great highlights of John 17 is, is Jesus' heart for his church to be united. And I love preaching through that passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Just loved our time walking through that. But here's the deal. As we consider God's heart for his church to be united, for us as his people to sort of the banner over a year, move forward together. As you consider the... The, 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 the need for us, God's heart for us to be one people. Um, you can produce unity a lot of different ways, a lot of different ways. But as we consider, you know, you, you gotta talk about it, you gotta read scripture, you know, what does God say about it? But if all we do is, is just talk about being united, I would say that we sort of sell ourselves short a little bit. One of the greatest things that will unite, you know, if whether it's a sports team or a, an army or musicians or a workplace or whatever, one of the greatest things that will unite a people is a common mission, a common goal that they simply 
get after it with together. I can think of nothing that would unite us more as a people than if we collectively embrace the call to continue the work that Jesus has started. The unity that would be produced here will be something that the rest of the world will long to experience. And a symbol of that unity is this, the supper that Christ has called each of us to participate in. When we, when we participate in this together, we do so as one people who are united by one sacrifice, by one savior, and who are enlisted and called to one mission. And so this right now, this morning is, is symbolic of our unity. And it's a reminder of what Christ has done in us and what he plans to do through us. And so let's take this together. I'm gonna read the scripture and then I'll, I'll guide us as we participate in the meal together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, this is Christ's body given for you. Let's take and eat. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, this is the blood of Christ spilled for you and me. Let's take and drink. Father God, we thank you for, um, first and foremost, um, for giving your son to die for our sins. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who never uh, forget uh, what you have given to make us your people, what it cost you so that we could freely receive forgiveness and newness of life. Lord, I pray that as a church that you would help us to embrace the plan your plan, the plan that you set out and de designed from the very beginning of time. Lord, that we would see a, our lives, ourselves in that plan. Lord, and we thank you that you have supplied us with the power, with your spirit, the spirit of the risen Christ you've given to us to be faithful to that plan. Lord, and I pray that you would help us also to be passionate Help us to, as we consider what we deserve and what you have given to us, Lord, I pray that we would be so sold out for you, Lord, that there's nothing that could get in our way of proclaiming the risen Christ wherever we are. We ask these things in your name, amen.